you Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Thanks for coming back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. This is episode 33. This episode is the Elizabethan era part five, Grand Strategy, Win the Existential War. No guests this week? Grand Strategy, high-level concepts in international conflict, whether or not it gets to the level of outright warfare. Grand strategy is a grand-sounding phrase. Probably too grand, it must be said, for the early modern period. Many historians think it is premature to even speak of ideas like foreign policy at all at this time. And that's fine. But we did see that letter from Hawkins. That was a lot like grand strategy. And we did see Drake extolling the virtue of his partial blockade of Spain off Cape St. Vincent. We saw the spoiling attack on Cadiz, and broadly speaking, we did follow the Hawkins strategy of using pirates to weaken Spain economically. It worked, remember. We discussed how Spain suffered the attrition of losing one in four ships on long ocean voyages versus one in ten ocean-going ships previously. The loss of fishing in the Outer Banks was another economic blow. The greatest grand strategic threats to England came from Spain's two most successful armadas. First, let's look at the most successful Spanish armada. This is 1590 and the Spanish attack on Brittany. Now, France is in a ferocious, vicious, civilian massacring, three-cornered series of civil wars between, one, a group of nobles called the Catholic League, supported by Spain and the Pope, and two, the Huguenot nobles, who were thought to be a large minority in France and a majority in many parts of France, and three, the royal government. Spain is going to succeed initially because France is so divided. Spain has poured beaucoup bucks into supporting the Catholic League, as we've discussed before. One could argue, and as proof here I am doing it, that this distraction prevented Spain from being successful against the Dutch Revolt. If they had suppressed the Dutch, they could have imposed the Counter-Reformation there and killed off Dutch innovation the way the Pope killed off progress in the Italian republics. And just at the moment, I'm thinking of Galileo's work on the law of falling bodies. Uh, fear of heresy was wisdom. And a few years later, Milton's observations that the fear of speaking out in Italy held back what could have been fertile ground for what we can call scientific discovery in addition to literature. Anyway, under the pressure of war with England, the Dutch republics, and this seemingly great opportunity in France, the Spanish crown is doing a lot of really nasty overtaxing. Castile and Sicily, in particular, are taxed to the point where their society and culture is starting to be deformed. Many other territories are revolting from high taxes. Taxes were a major, major contributing factor to the Dutch revolt. So Spain invades Brittany and kicks out the Huguenots. Rapid success at first with their Catholic League allies. This is a major move. The port of Brest is the best French Atlantic port. And with the hostile army and navy in Brest, England would be perpetually vulnerable. As grand strategy, this is a brilliant move by the Spanish. And Spanish forces actually do undertake some raids on Cornwall. One, taking Penzance and burning it down along with some nearby villages. If everyone in England wasn't hating the Spanish before, they are now. Yet one more thing to weaken Catholicism in England. 
When later Stuarts and also some major noble families take a pro-Spanish policy and Spanish bribes, they're going to be very, very out of step with the nation, and the political nation in particular. If you're aware, during World War II, the German Navy built one of their practically unbombable U-boat bases in Brest because of its strategic location out there at the western end of the Brittany Peninsula. It was also a tremendously dangerous naval air base where long-range anti-shipping missions were flown that strained British supply lines in the early 1940s. An argument could be made that underinvestment in anti-shipping air forces was one of Germany's biggest mistakes in World War II. Although, of course, there are many. Again, Adam Tooze's economic history, Wages of Destruction, is one of the best supplements to truly understanding World War II military history. Anyway, Spain made a brilliant move, fortifying Brest. Elizabeth responds by sending troops, including some veterans from the Dutch War. And a lot of historians like to give the English land forces a bad rap during this time. Clearly they had challenges to overcome, but this was a successful move in two key aspects. English support helped secure the Edict of Nantes, which gave the Huguenots toleration for decades. And English forces under Martin Frobisher take on the Spanish efforts to fortify Brest. They dominate the area on both land and sea and force the Spanish to surrender. As a matter of grand strategy, the Spanish in Brest is a major problem. Well, problem solved. And why didn't this armada stay at sea and support the land forces? They were just not up for it in so many ways. The first Bourbon king of France is Henry of Navarre. He becomes Henry IV, and he's a Huguenot. And it seems France might end up that way, interestingly. That would be a really interesting alternate history. But he makes a smart move and converts to Catholicism. Famously, the quote associated with him is, Paris is worth a mass. And now he has the government, and the Huguenots trust him. He was one of them. And a lot of the Catholic League goes over to him as he's a Catholic now. And war exhaustion is a thing even in France. And this series of religious wars has been pretty intense, off and on now for over 30 years. And France has been kind of offline for these 30 years. And now they can come back to the world stage. They are a Catholic power, but most importantly, they are an anti-Habsburg power. They are just a bit behind Spain in building an effective central administration with a regular tax collection that enables them to keep powerful forces in the field constantly. In this way, they are far ahead of England, and for a time, they will appear invincible. Now, later on, I'll develop the theme that this process of establishing a functioning bureaucracy and effective central government able to carry out the wishes of the leadership is a double-edged sword. What I've said over and over is that in England, they don't really have an effective central administration, not a professional bureaucracy. Talented amateurs, if you will. Domestic policy is carried out by JPs and local elites and, of course, the church. But I have to say that by European standards, England is very well-governed locally. But Spain does have an effective central administration. Well, relatively effective. And France will soon follow. And this seems to be a good idea. This does make Spain powerful. It does make France powerful. Castile is maybe 50% richer than England per capita, maybe, in about 1550. However, I'll show in just a few episodes 
that the economic ideas people have in the 16th century are so poorly developed that likely a strong central administration is actually harmful to future development. They're doing the wrong things. They don't know anything else to do. When England develops an effective administration of the Admiralty in the mid-17th century, it becomes very powerful navally. When they develop an effective administration on land in the 18th century, they're the best organized in the world, which means better than Spain and France. Why were not Spain and France as able? After all, they got there first, so why did they not keep their institutional lead? Why did they not just get better and better? But remember, another of our themes is that successful institutions immediately begin to fail if they don't have a means for renewal. This is a curse human institutions have to deal with and usually fail at. So Spain and France are later a victim of their earlier success because they could not reinvent and keep up. When Bismarck's Germany, for example, develops an effective bureaucracy, that is the most effective in the world when it is new. And we'll be hearing more about this. The other big strategic issue is Ireland. Now, you've probably picked up on the fact that I love Ireland and think it's a great place to spend time, but I've struggled with talking about Ireland very much. It's peripheral to my miracle lens on the Industrial Revolution, but I've also read enough about it and thought enough about it trudging over the Irish countryside to say I don't understand it or its history. I mean, that's not to say there aren't several podcast episodes full of facts that are possible, but I feel there's something elusive about the clans and their psychology, philosophy of life and death, if you will, that prevents me from trying to turn the miracle lens in that direction. Ireland is, however, a strategic issue for Britain. It's right there on the West, theoretically conquered and under control, but actually constantly in rebellion and sucking in more resources than it produces in taxes and only poorly integrated into the economy. Although efforts in that direction are made, Efforts to colonize North America are made difficult, some historians say impossible, as long as Ireland is such a distraction in the West. And the Spanish realized the importance of Ireland too. The Pope's invasion of Ireland in 1570 was all about that. We think Spain was financially supporting Irish rebels. And during the long war with Spain, Ireland rebels in what we call the Nine Years' War. And the Irish are quite successful with their guerrilla tactics. English settlers are massacred all over. The Munster plantation is brutalized. The Irish are not give-peace-a-chance types in those days. And this is another thing contributing to anti-Catholic feeling, hysteria even. But the Irish forces are strongest in Ulster in the north. And we're talking before the establishment of Protestant Ulster here, though that will follow these events the Spanish decide to send a large force to Ireland. This is the fifth and last armada in 1601. They're dispersed by storm, so there's that breath of Jehovah again, though I prefer God's finger as a metaphor. About a third of the Spanish decide to return home. This is never adequately explained. This could, I stress, be yet another example of shyness versus the English at sea. The rest land in the southwest of Ireland, about 4,000 troops, about as far from Ulster where their Irish allies are as is possible. They get quickly put under siege, and when an English fleet shows up, the Spanish fleet has gone home. Why? So they're trapped by land and sea, 
just a few hundred Spanish troops are able to get to the north and meet up with the Irish forces, who come south to help the besieged Spanish. The Irish have to move a force of many thousands of men in winter, about 300 miles, and it all goes badly for the Irish cause. Their forces, which had been doing so well, are utterly smashed in open combat. They seem to have no answer to the English cavalry charge. The Spanish feel hopeless and surrender and are allowed to sail home. And that's it. No more armadas. So the English go on the offensive more broadly. Historians say that English control over Ireland is secure enough to contemplate serious settlement of North America. Certainly, the Ulster plantation which follows in Ireland is a great success. And the English have this idea of blockading Spain, which is partially, fitfully implemented. And there's a fun little adventure when one of Elizabeth's courtiers tried to grab glory by attacking Cadiz again. It is successful, and the Spanish treasure fleet is in port. And they could have had the whole thing. But they attack in the wrong order. And the Spanish commander, our friend Medina Sidonia, orders the treasure fleet to be burned in port so that the treasure sinks to the bottom of the harbor. The English can't get to it because of a few tens of feet of water. Eventually, Spanish divers are able to raise it. Anyway, mutual exhaustion leads to peace. Peace negotiations take years to achieve this, as the Spanish still have several schemes to get themselves into a stronger position. They all fail. But the one where a galley fleet would help them dominate the English Channel is a pretty interesting one. But then, I'm a fan of galley warfare. And Britain is going to get a couple of decades of peace, during which English trade and industry continues to advance. And during this time, curiously, the upper leadership of England will seem to forget what war requires, almost as if they think God grants victories to the unprepared, when in reality, he does not. Remember Oliver Cromwell? Trust in God and keep your powder dry? An existential war against the world's superpower, Spain, has been survived. Apart from the raids in Cornwall and the armada that lands in southwest Ireland, Elizabeth's territory was secure. And she actually dies before peace is signed, but she is still the winner. And she wins because God intervenes. And that divine intervention will play the crucial role in her major domestic challenge, the rise of the godly, the Puritans, and their challenge to the Church of England. And we'll cover that next week after Conversations with Cammie. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, Cammie, you've just got a chance to hear episode 33, Grand Strategy. What'd you think? Grand Strategy. Well, we just survived a war with the superpower of the time. Yes. And, and there now we have peace. And there was war exhaustion, divine intervention mentioned in the episode, and all kinds of things. Well, Government divine intervention is a really important point because everyone believed that's what happened. And people believed it on both sides. So if you lost, did you believe that was divine intervention? Philip II uh, thought it was divine intervention against the Armada for something he must have been doing wrong. And in England, we listened in episode 32. Uh, there was this whole pattern of response to the Armada. And we had the one example from Shakespeare sort of showing how uh, they did it. 
So if you lost your battle and, and your armies wiped out, you would somehow decide or choose to believe that God just wasn't on our side this time. It certainly seemed to happen sometimes. You know, I doubt it is as simple as that all the time. They'd be educated in an Aristotelian way, and people can have proximate causes and final causes and understand these things that would leave them equipped to think of any kind of complex event at multiple levels. People were able to do that. Well, people are complex. They're going to put things at more levels than one. It's just... Yeah, yeah. But one of those levels could be that we did something wrong, we took the wrong approach, God was not on our side. So in 1601, the Spanish go to Ireland. You go on to talk about how a third of them went back home. Why do you think they didn't? Yeah, so my suggestion was was shyness. Yeah, I heard that. Usually when you get scattered by weather, you have a place where you're all supposed to rendezvous afterward. It's an expected thing. You have some orders for where you're you're all going to meet up afterward. And a third of the Spanish fleet just decided to go home. Uh, The idea you presented regarding governments and organizations that tend to fail without means of renewal. Well, and you have some firsthand experience sort of living through that kind of stuff, don't you? I think we see a lot of examples of that in everyday life, whether it's small towns or, shoot, even families and relationships. I think that's a dynamic that, that fits kind of across the board. Yeah, I think it's a human curse. We, we like our rules, we like our traditions, but I guess we can get stuck in policies and bureaucracy, government, and old laws that are on the books forever. Yeah, and the way bureaucracies run might make a lot of sense when they're established. They might make sense for those people. They might make sense for you know the times and with the, all the attitudes that people had and carried with them, but... You know, do they still make sense now? As technology changes and ideas change and even the compositions of families. Yeah. So I, I really appreciated that thought at boiling it down into a simple sentence. Yeah, well, thanks. But I mean, I didn't invent the idea. It's the yin and yang. How in every, in the yin, there's a little bit of yang. And in the yang, there's a little bit of yin, those little dots in the eye of the fish in the symbol, right? Um, When applied to historical analysis, it can sometimes feel like a tautology, you know, where every case of institutional failure is, is an example of the dynamic playing out, and every case where the institution doesn't fail, well, there you go, you found a source of renewal. There's a logical trap, but I mean, we have a lot of similar ideas, like the iron law of bureaucracy, conquest laws, of institutions that, you know, kind of all tend to the same way. And I would read the history, hopefully without falling victim to the tautology, that it is true that successful institutions begin to fail, and failure is more common than success globally, and some source of renewal is necessary for institutions to be successful in the very long run. Well, your experience with bureaucracy is definitely one of the inspirations for that. I do work for a bureaucracy, and I'm not going to get into that here. You wouldn't dare. (laughs) I wouldn't dare. I won't put you on the spot. Divine favor. How is that going to come into play into the miracle that happened that one time? Well, I think one of the most important things that happened 
was the domination of England uh, by the Puritans in the 1640s and the struggle between the Puritans and the independents uh, for toleration or lack of toleration, minority religions, Protestant sects, you know, the kinds that would grow up into be the Quakers and the Methodists and the Baptists. And the Puritans had this of a bunch of really, really weird ideas that have a bunch of really, really weird consequences. They tend to create very individualistic people, and they seem to be factories for producing exceptional people, people with a really great attainment and accomplishment. We are going to talk about that in future episodes. But the Puritans didn't win at first in England. They lost the political battle. Right. To Elizabeth. Well, they left eventually. Well, correct? a few left and started the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Right. Yeah. But no, they end up winning. And actually, some of the Puritans that come back from Massachusetts to, to fight in the English Civil War are quite influential. And I'm thinking people like Henry Vane. But yeah, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, this sort of place of idealism in the minds of, of the English Puritans. Yeah, that's a whole other piece of history that is very influential. And... The consequence of the conflict between Elizabeth and the Puritans is that Elizabeth wins. One of the reasons is that God is obviously on her side. Ah, there we go. Obviously. Obviously. Who's going to lose a religious dispute when God is on your side? I don't think that happens very often. I guess not. But... One of the consequences of the Puritans losing was that they sort of retreated from politics and they worked on their inner strength. They did their exercises and they emerged strong, very, very strong, strong enough to take on every force that existed in Europe and defeat it. That would be amazingly strong. Yep. And organized and Apparently a government that had a means of renewal. Exactly. There was means of renewal. It was really messy and really bloody and really costly. But uh, when the renewal came, they were far more effective than anybody else out there, both at sea and with the military forces on land. And economically, they moved from being 50% behind Spain, maybe, in 1550, to being 50% ahead of Spain by the late 17th century. Ahead of Spain in what way? In people's per capita income. Ah. In technological development in a wide variety of fields. That's impressive. Good place to end. You're welcome. Hey, I want to encourage everybody to go check out the website, hangingwithhistory.com. Quok has done a lot of really great work on it recently, and it is so much better. And I'd like to remind everybody to please leave a positive review wherever you get your podcast. You can contact us at herald at hangingwithhistory.com. That's H-A-R-A-L-D at hangingwithhistory.com. Or you can use the contact us link on the website. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.